This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Julia Magana. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Nathan Cooperman, Chair of UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine and one of three co-PIs of the PCARN Febrile Infant Study. Today, we're going to discuss serious bacterial illnesses in young febrile infants with positive urinalysis results. This article was published in Pediatrics in October 2022. Nate, welcome back. Great to be back, Julia. It's been a while since we talked about the febrile infant studies, but um, we have learned a ton over the 15 years, right, Nate, of studying the febrile infants? 15 years, right. This is the study that keeps on giving. (laughs) (laughs) Is this the last of your papers here? Well, actually, you know, uh, Julia, we probably have another 10 that are stacked Get up. Get out of yeah. here. <laughs> it's it's going to keep on giving for a few more years. That's awesome. <laughs> well, today we are going to tackle the question of what is the prevalence of bacteremia? And in my estimation, even more interestingly, the prevalence of meningitis in febrile infants that are less than or equal to 60 days of age with a positive UA, so presumed UTI. Nate, review with us briefly the structure of the PCARN febrile infant study and how you specifically looked at this subset here. The PCARN febrile infant study, it dates back, I think started in about 2005, and we've had now three sequential federal grants to study febrile infants. And the overarching theme is we're trying to figure out the best diagnostic tools to identify kids that are at risk for bacteremia and bacterial meningitis, you know, the invasive bacterial infections. And we've actually been focusing on everything from simple tests like the urinalysis all the way to genomic tests like RNA expression. So uh, in the course of um, these many years, we've enrolled somewhere between seven and 8,000 febrile infants. And how we do that is that we evaluate them in the emergency department consent their parents uh, to do the study, and they get their routine laboratory tests, urine and blood. But we've obtained extra blood to do specific testing like procalcitonin and the RNA testing and whatnot. And then we follow them up either in the hospital or as outpatients to see their outcomes. That's a good overview. What about this specific group of those with a positive UA and invasive bacterial illnesses? How did you study them and define them? So let me tell you just quickly why we study them, and I'll tell you how we study them, is that, you know, it's a big subset of febrile infants that have positive urinalysis because, you know, UTIs are very common, uh, probably 8 to 10% of the febrile babies in this age group. And the big question that all of us clinicians have is that, well, if you have a UTI, does that mean you don't have anything else so I don't have to do invasive testing and LPs and hospitalization? Or is it maybe the opposite? You have a UTI Maybe you're bacteremic or have meningitis with the same pathogen, or maybe neither one, and it's somewhere in between. So we wanted to set out to find out the answer to that question. That is, if you have a positive urinalysis, maybe we would have the good fortune that you don't have other or invasive bacterial infections like bacteremia or bacterial meningitis, and you can avoid a lot of invasive testing. So what we did for this study is we took the subset of these 7,000-plus febrile infants we've been studying uh, over the years, we identified the subset of almost 1,100 babies, and that included all the way from zero to 60 days, quite a positive urinalysis. And we separated them to those that were in the first month of life, 
higher-risk infants, and those in the second uh, month of life. And we looked at if you have a positive UA or a negative UA, what is the risk of bacteremia or bacterial meningitis in those two age cohorts with and without a positive urinalysis? That sounds great. And definitely a question I've had throughout my career is, who should I be tapping and who should I not be tapping? So this is helpful. Uh, What were the major results? The nutshell major results, and I'll break it down by age category. In the first month of life, both those with a positive urinalysis or a negative urinalysis had identical rates of bacterial meningitis, around 1%. So the answer to the clinician for the first month of life, do the lumbar puncture. The second month of life, super interesting. There were 697 infants in the second month of life with a positive urinalysis. Zero, not one, had bacterial meningitis. That is like amazing number. Zero out of 697. That is absolutely amazing. (laughs) So the implication is if we studied 3,000 of them, maybe there might be one or two, but there were zero out of 697. So our approach would be if they're in the second month of life and they have a positive urinalysis, you do not need to do the lumbar puncture. That's actually reflected in the recently published AAP guidelines. If you wanted to be extra, extra sure, you could get the blood tests. And if their ANC is normal, that is less than 4,000 according to the PCARN rules, and the procalcitonin was less than 0.5, then you're triply sure that they're extremely low risk of having bacterial meningitis. That seems pretty clear. I love the zero. That makes it a little <laughs> bit easier. <laughs> That's a number I can wrap my mind around. What were some of the limitations to this approach? Well, one important limitation is bacterial meningitis is not the only invasive bacterial infection. There's also bacteremia. And the results around bacteremia weren't as pretty. So if you have a positive urinalysis and you're in the 0 to 60 day range with fever, your rate of bacteremia is close to 6% as opposed to if you had a negative uh, urinalysis, the rate of bacteremia was only 1%. So having a positive urinalysis increases your rate of bacteremia. And actually, the number was higher, around 8% or so in the first month of life, and about 4% or so in the second month of life. But in both months of life, the rate of bacteremia was a real number. And it was much lower if you did not have a positive urinalysis. But what that means in our mind, and this is an important caveat, First month of life, get the LP, get the labs, admit for their presumed UTI. Second month of life, you don't need to do the lumbar puncture, as I mentioned at the start. However, the rate of bacteremia in the second month of life with a positive urinalysis is still a real number. It's around 4%. So for that group of infants, you can lower the risk by getting the ANC and procalcitonin. It was a subset analysis we did in this article, and zero patients was zero out of around 150 who had ANC and procalcitonin tested, who had a positive UA, zero out of the 150 had either bacteremia or bacterial meningitis. I know that complicates it a little bit, but the implication now for the clinician, if we kind of walk it back to the start, Less than one month of life, positive UA, you just do the full thing 
admit for antibiotics, the risk of bacteremia, bacterial meningitis is high. Second month of life, positive urinalysis, you don't need to do the LP. You definitely get the bloods uh, because if their inflammatory markers were elevated, they're certainly at higher risk of bacteremia and they would need probably parenteral antibiotics and maybe even a hospitalization given that they're so young with their UTI. But if they have a positive urinalysis in the second month of life and negative blood biomarkers, oral antibiotics, and hasta la vista, and home follow-up next day with their primary care practitioner. That makes sense. Let's run a case here. Yeah. We've got a five-week-old. They come in febrile. They have a clearly positive urinalysis. This looks convincing for a UTI. I draw blood because I'm going to get a blood culture, and I'm going to get an ANC and ProCal, right? That's what you're suggesting. And the ANC and ProCal come back high, like significantly high. Are you then going to tap or just admit with antibiotics? Our data suggests, you know, zero out of 697, all comers, regardless of their blood tests in the second month of life with a positive urinalysis, have bacterial meningitis. However, within that 697, it's a smaller subset who have elevated inflammatory markers. So you're confidence in those numbers becomes smaller. So in that scenario that you just told me, five-week-old, positive urinalysis, but the ProCal and ANC are elevated, the baby's close to one month of age, I'm probably going to do the LP. If you told me, however, it was like a seven-week-old and their ProCal is normal and their ANC is a little bit elevated, I will not do the LP. I'll just treat for uh, for their UTI. So, so it's an important question. And what it suggests, and I think the AAP guidelines reflect this, that scenario, there's room for shared decision-making because the answer is not clear for that second month of age infant with a positive urinalysis whose blood inflammatory markers are a bit elevated. You can discuss risks, benefits, uh, with the parents about doing the LP. But either way, they're going to get a parental dose of antibiotics to treat their UTI. Would you admit them either way? Another great question. And now that that's the question of who do we admit for UTIs? This is how I'll answer that question. If their inflammatory markers are negative, we had 150 of them with inflammatory markers negative with a positive urinalysis. Not one of them in both age groups, that is zero to 60, had bacteremia or bacterial meningitis. So if I have a child in the second month of life, second month of life, positive urinalysis, blood inflammatory markers negative, I'm going to give them maybe a parental dose of antibiotics or even an oral dose of antibiotics, and I'm comfortable sending them home with close follow-up. However, if they're in that second month of life and their inflammatory markers are positive, Regardless of whether I LP or not, I'm going to bring them into the hospital to treat because now their risk of bacteremia is significantly higher. Yeah, that makes sense to me because of that bacteremia risk there. Nate, was there anything that surprised you from this study? Well, I, I will say that I was surprised about that 0 of 697. We knew because other people have studied this. And I'm not going to just say that PCARM, we study it better, but we're very meticulous. <laughs> but, but we're very meticulous, and the and the sample sizes are big. But others have studied this, 
and have suggested that the risk of bacterial meningitis in that second month is low. I didn't know it was going to be zero in our study. And we, as you know, Julia, these are prospectively enrolled infants that are followed very closely. We're very confident in those numbers. So I will say that I was surprised. And as a clinician, it makes me feel much more comfortable about obviating not doing that LP in the second month of life. But I am mindful that bacteremia is out there, and that's why I still rely on those blood biomarkers to help with decision-making about admit or not for UTI. And I might think about the LP if you're in that younger part of that second month of life and your inflammatory markers are positive. I think about the LP and probably discuss it with the parents. Nate, remind me, what did you define elevated inflammatory markers as? For purpose of the study, to be consistent with our PCARN prediction rule, and just to remind your listeners out there, the PCARN prediction rule for serious bacterial infections, which includes UTI, bacteremia, or bacterial meningitis, was urinalysis being positive or negative, an ANC greater than or less than to 4,000 cells per millimeter cubed, or a procalcitonin of 0.5 nanograms per milliliter. So a negative inflammatory markers were an ANC less than 4,000 or PCT less than 0.5. And Nate, how does this fit into the grander scheme of the AAP febrile infant decisions? The AAP guidelines, and actually I was mentioning to you, I have a commentary that um, should be coming out soon about this. The guidelines were 15 years in the making. I was one of a group of authors. I was um, one of a, a couple of pediatric emergency physicians working with peds, infectious disease physicians and general pediatricians. It took 15 years because, first of all, there's a lot of data and data continue to emerge. And there's a lot of opinions out there, right? I like to think the peds, infectious disease physicians, and they're all, these are all smart people and good friends of mine, but they consult in the ICU all the time. And everybody seems septic to them. The general, the, <laughs> the, the general pediatrician, you know, if it's an ill-appearing baby, they don't go there. They come to the emergency department, so they don't think any febrile baby is sick. But we <laughs> in the pediatric emergency department, we know exactly about how to assess these children <laughs> because we see them all. But how it fits into the AAP guidelines, this is the way I look at it. The guidelines provide us really good information for whom we definitely don't need to do the invasive stuff. When I mean invasive stuff, I mean LP, IV antibiotics, ADMIT. They also identify those babies who definitely do need those three things that I just mentioned. But there's always some areas where the decision is not clear. And one of them you just identified, the child with a UTI in the second month who has an inflammatory marker that's a bit elevated. LP or no LP. Our study suggests zero out of 697 regardless, but there's only a smaller subset that had positive inflammatory markers. So that's an area for shared decision-making. And just as a side note, the fourth week of life, that's one of the areas in the AAP guidelines that is new to all of us. That is, we used to all do the full evaluation for sepsis in the first month of life. But over time, as a group of investigators have identified that fourth week is just a lesser risk than the first three weeks of life. So in that fourth week of life, another area of shared decision-making is if they have all 
PCARM predictors that are negative and they're in the fourth week of life, you can share, do shared decision-making about the LP or not because remember the PCARM predictors are just blood and urine. They don't involve CSF. So the AAP guidelines, which I think are great, of course, I have my, you know, my <laughs> skin in the game there. They don't have all the answers. They do identify some areas where shared decision-making is needed. And this kind of gives us those numbers to have exactly, the shared decision-making. Exactly. These are, and like what I'd like to uh, tell folks is that when you have these numbers and these prediction rules, they're not out there to tell you what to do. They give you the numbers to empower your decision-making because your clinical judgment cannot be beat. It just can be empowered with having the numbers. And in PCAR, what we like to do is provide those numbers to empower your judgment. I really appreciate that, Nate, because I love having the numbers to be able to discuss this with families, and uh, it makes my shifts a little bit easier. Okay, so my big takeaway, Nate, from this is if my baby that is less than or equal to 60 days of life has a positive UA, I have some numbers. Now, during that first month of life, it's easy. Don't engage brain, just do it all. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Muscle memory, go through it all. <laughs> then in that second month of life, this empowers us with numbers. Then we can start to say, okay, if we have negative inflammatory markers in that child with a positive UA, we are good to go. They can get some antibiotics, go home, treat the UTI. If the inflammatory markers are positive, especially if the ProCal is positive, we need to consider about bacteremia. That is a real issue. And in that case, we definitely want to give IV antibiotics. Strongly consider admit because of bacteremia and decision share. Lean towards it, especially if the ProCal is high on the LP. All right, Nate. Thanks. We'll be back again since there's 10 more <laughs> there's papers. More, there's more coming. <laughs>